0: Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gert, president of the Academy. On this episode, I'll discuss the nation's public health system and its social equity aspects during the reopening after COVID 19 with my guest, Dr. Georges Benjamin. Georges is a fellow of the Academy, a longtime public health leader and Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. So Georges, as I know you're super busy. So thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Terry, thanks, sir. thanks for having me.
0: Well, nobody knows more about how the medical system is supposed to work than you. And most of us have barely an understanding of the public health system. And yet we've certainly heard a lot about it since the arrival of the coronavirus pandemic. Can you help us understand how the public health system is supposed to work? Uh,
1: ha- happy to do so. Uh, and, you know, the United States is one of the, one of the only nations in the world, which has kind of bifurcated its medical care system from its public health system. And part of that's because we have don't have universal health care, and we don't really have a governmentally um, driven um, healthcare system, but You know, everyone knows what doctors and nurses are in hospitals, and I'm I'm, I'm not talking about that part. Um, But what I am talking about is the fact that we have a system which is a uh, governmental public health system, which is a federal, state, and local partnership. So every community um, has a um, uh, a group of of workers whose job it is to um, protect the public's health. And their responsibilities are in law. So every city and county um, has that um, responsibility. And just like a fire department or police department, and they do such things as um, making sure that uh, the water is safe to drink, um, the air is safe to, to, to breathe, and the food safe to eat. Uh, they also um, have the responsibility of making sure that uh, if there are some infectious diseases that occur in the community like we're having right now with COVID-19 that they can rapidly identify that health threat and um, theoretically um, mitigate it or prevent it or or stamp it out. Now the department um, also does other things such as worry about maternal child health and um, sexually transmitted diseases and Uh, If there are too many people falling down steps, so injury control, um, firearm related violence, they all deal with those kinds of problems as well. Now, every state has a state health department, just like they have a Department of the Environment or Department of the Interior or a Department of Transportation. Every state has a has a health department. And then at the federal level, of course, we have the Department of U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which has a series of agencies that do public health from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which is the nation's prevention agency, um, to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which pays for um, both through health insurance coverage through Medicare and Medicaid, uh, as well as establish some regulatory oversight on uh, insurance uh, in the country, to um, the National Institute of Health, which does research and funds the bulk of the research in our country, so let's walk through what 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 the these three entities how they interact. If you have um, something like um, COVID, which is um, you know obviously a big issue for us today, um, your local health department would know um, and have the capacity to identify uh, when that threat enters the community. They do that because they're they're routinely. Um, looking at new infections, either because they actually have a test, which tests for that disease, or because they suddenly see a whole bunch of people getting sick in the community. And then they go in, just like detectives, and they figure out who got sick, why they got sick, and then they report that up the chain from the locals to the state, to the federal authorities, uh, and then they partner to figure out whether or not that has occurred in other communities that we didn't see around the country. Uh, And then they work together to try to to prevent it um, in the future. Let's say, for example, you have a a new um, toy that goes out on the market. And all of a sudden, we see that children are choking on a small part of that toy because that that part falls off the toy. Those get reported through um, a range of consumer safety um, activities. Your health department is involved in that activity as well. Um, and then we put out a notice. We get involved with the company, usually at the national level. And that company um, works to either fix the toy or pull it from the market. So what public health does is it um, prevents things from happening in the, first thing, in the first place. Or it works very hard to, um, uh, to treat them and, um, and treat people and get them better, working with the medical care side of the house.
0: Well, it sounds like it's a pretty complicated but pretty important system. You know, one of the things we've heard a lot about in the pandemic is the need to invest more in public health, which sort of is the flip side of we haven't invested much in public health um, for several decades. So you chaired two recent studies for the National Academy of Public Administration looking at the national epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases, also a public health issue, where you identified underinvestment as a critical problem how is the COVID situation and the STD situation sort of the same? And where should we have been drawing the connections in the past?
1: Well, thank you, Terry. Yeah, um, those are two very important studies. And for for the audience, we looked at um, um, first initially the national picture around sexually transmitted diseases. And then we looked in our second review um, at the local um, situation. And in both cases, we recognize that, Sexually transmitted diseases are growing in our country. Even though we thought we had gotten our hands around gonorrhea and syphilis, um, as as an example, and chlamydia, uh, those three diseases in particular are are growing um, um, substantially in the community. What's important to know is that there are a group of people called disease intervention specialists. And they're the people that when you have a disease like that, Uh, and it gets reported by your your doctor um, or nurse practitioner to the health department, which is they're required to do because it's a reportable disease, then they contact you to identify all the people that you may have been in contact with um, sexually in order for them to make sure they get adequately treated uh, and know that they were exposed to the disease. Now, in some cases they may not have gotten infected, but far too often they have. And so, they do that, and they do that in a very sensitive manner. Because as you can imagine, um, that's not a disease that a lot of people want to talk about. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of reasons people keep those kinds of secrets um, about who their sexual contacts were. And so this group of people are very, very good at doing an interview in a non-threatening manner. And they keep that information very confidential because that's, that's a concern that people have is about um, the confidentiality of the information. Now, how does that um, crosswalk with COVID? Well, same kind of contact tracing, because what happens with uh, with COVID is that people get the infection, um, and there's a time period in which they may have infected others because they're obviously ill, or there is about 25% of the population um, Shares that infection, not even because they don't even know they're sick. And so that, that's a real challenge. And so what we also have to do with COVID is contact tracing. And we identify people who have had the disease um, when they're sick. And then we talk with them about who their contacts are. And then we go find those folks to allow them the opportunity to know that they've been exposed so they can self-monitor um, right now, we don't have a treatment for this, but if we, when we do get a treatment or a vaccine, they'll be able to get protected because they've been exposed to the disease as well. So, interestingly enough, the um, the work we did on for STDs and encouraging the nation to build a much stronger disease detection um, and mitigation apparatus will help us as we go forward to dealing with COVID um, nineteen. So, in many ways, Terry. Uh, NAPA um, uh, set the stage for improving the public health system.
0: Well, we like to think we're out there on the forward edge of some of these kinds of conversations. And so um, I think it's so important that that we pull the thread a little bit on the contact tracing, because as you mentioned, it's an essential part of the public health apparatus, right, and controlling the spread of all kinds of diseases. And yet now in this pandemic situation, we're starting to hear worries about civil rights and civil liberties protection and privacy, and whether we can put an app out that will do contact tracing for us in a virtual sort of way. What should we be thinking about in terms of privacy um, and civil liberties protection as we go into really a massive move towards contact tracing in the pandemic?
1: You know the 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 conflict between um, civil liberties and public health is not a new one. We we've had to deal with that um, around smoking, and we've had to deal with that around motorcycle helmets, and even in the early days of of seatbelts, because um, people felt that their right to drive without a seatbelt would be impaired. Um, the the challenge is. That there is a societal obligation to protect one another, and while everyone certainly has the right um, to to live their their own lives, um, the real challenge comes in when what you do infects my health and well-being of me or my family. And so, with tobacco, it's secondhand smoke. With um, motorcycle helmets, it turns out that a lot of people that get brain injured uh, on a motorcycle end up um, on the public dime because Um, they end up with brain injury, and it's very, very expensive to take care of people with brain injury, and they end up um, impoverished on Medicaid. And so the public has to pay for that. Um, With COVID, of course, it is um, because if I get infected, I may infect you. And particularly because this can be a life-threatening illness, uh, it even carries a much higher uh, degree of concern. So that's always been an issue. So as we're thinking about how to do this, um, I just encourage people to recognize that there is a, um, an opportunity for you to protect your own health. But the real thing that you have to be concerned about is how do you protect the health of others? So when you wear a mask, when you, um, um, don't, you know, don't cough directly in someone's face, when you social distance or and at least six feet from one another, when you're washing your hands, you're not just protecting yourself. But you're protecting me um and that that is in addition to your obligation to your own self which you have a right to do um but you're going to protect me and i think that's part of your societal obligation
0: i really like that reframing is taking care of yourself but also taking care of others and so the the corresponding piece that we've heard a lot about in addition to the contact tracing is the testing Mm -hmm. and then in order to really have a full reopening of businesses Mm -hmm. and communities we've got to have a massive national testing regime. I know APHA and you have been out there kind of in the front of the testing conversation. So talk to us a little bit about that. Who, In this intergovernmental partnership of public health, who has the responsibility to do testing and monitoring and sharing? And it's a big data problem. And you know how often do you get tested and who gets tested first? So it's really complicated. But I think like the, the title of the podcast, this is really where policy meets practice, right? And it's got a huge implication for how we move forward. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and um, think about how our public administrators out there at the local level can be thinking about this question.
1: Yeah. Well, the rubber, well, the rubber meets the road. The testing is local, but it's also a partnership. So everybody, everybody has a role in this testing uh, obligation. Number one, the, the, the traditional medical healthcare system, right? Doctors, nurses, hospitals, they test, but they test for clinical reasons. They want to know, if I come in with um, a shortness of breath or a cough or a fever, um, they're testing so they can properly treat me. They're also testing so they can do appropriate infection control if I have an infectious disease like COVID. So that's why they test. Um, your local health department is testing for two reasons. Number one um, is to aid in helping to identify people who are ill, and they do that, of course, just like the healthcare system. But the more important role that they have is to do the testing so they can figure out um, how to target resources and how to identify where the disease is. So when I was a, a state health official, I was a state health officer in Maryland, um, Every, you know, we had a surveillance system, which um, routinely doctors do when they send their tests into us for, for um, nasal um, tests or throat swabs, we also test for flu. And the reason we do that is so that when influenza enters the community, I can put out a press release and let folks know the flu is here so that they could then be put in place a range of protections at the job uh, in terms of enhancing the cleaning of their offices um, so that they can then make sure that their employees are getting their immunizations so they can protect their employees to improve their work productivity. And obviously for the public, so the public can protect themselves um, each and every year. So that's why we test. We do surveillance testing for influenza. Eventually, we'll do the same kind of testing um, for COVID, just like we do for influenza uh, testing, just routine testing, surveillance testing, so that we know when it is going in the community and when it kind of goes away. The other thing, as I said, targeting resources. So had we had an effective test early on, we would then would have been able to go into places like nursing homes um, and to minority communities where, in retrospect, turned out to be the communities that were most impacted, at least initially, from this disease. They had the, the worst health outcomes. We would have been able to go in and, in many cases, start testing employees, start testing um, some of the, the patients, and we've been able to isolate them um, and quarantine them if they didn't have symptoms. Because, And in and, and doing that, we would have been able to reduce the number of, of people who died from this disease. So it's a very, very effective thing. Now, at the federal level, as you know, anytime you have a new disease like this, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's responsibility is to figure out how to make a new diagnostic test. And then the Food and Drug uh, Drug Administration's responsibility is to provide regulatory oversight and to authorize the utilization of the test. So even at the federal level, there's bifurcation of responsibilities. Uh, in this case, it did not work as well, at least initially, as we had hoped. Um, but 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 we're hoping that obviously, again, we've learned that lesson, and and it will get better in the future. By the way, this is the first time we've really had this kind of testing failure at the at the CDC.
0: Well, so thinking about uh, contact tracing and testing, it sounds like those are going to be part of our lives going forward um, to really get a handle on the disease. But I want to take a little bit of a different approach to the questions now, and I know something that's near and dear to your heart. Um, One of the Academy's 12 grand challenges in public administration is to foster social equity. And so this pandemic has demonstrated perhaps more clearly in real tangible ways than we've seen in a lot of other situations, how different groups are affected differently. Um, And so as we think about our public health situation going forward, and we look at minority communities, as you mentioned, that have been um, significantly impacted by this disease and folks kind of across the spectrum with the underlying conditions should we really kind of re-engineer how we think about our approach to public health? How do we get a healthier public you know, coming out of this?
1: Terry, that's, that's a great question. And you know, 80% of what makes you ha- healthy occurs outside the doctor's office. Um, and so what we really need to be thinking about is how do we um, build a new social compact for health so that we make sure that um, our, everyone gets well, a good education Uh, Everyone has access to uh, affordable transportation and hopefully mass transportation um, so that we um, really move to much more of a living wage for everyone. Um, We know that um, health is impacted um, by wealth to the extent that we um, build a society where we're thinking more and more about one another uh, are going to be going to be very important because the truth of the matter is the root causes of most of what makes us uh, ill and promotes wellness and health um, is the way we build our communities, the fact we have green spaces, the fact that the communities are walkable, bikeable, and green, uh, the fact that people have the freedom um, to go to the beaches um, and that they're accessible to everyone, uh, to make sure the air is safe to breathe, the water is safe to drink, and the food is safe to eat. That only happens in a society that is is designed to to help and support one another. If we do that, then as a nation, we will no longer be uh, at the bottom of other industrialized nations in terms of life and longevity. Um, We will live longer. We will pay less for health care, but more for social services and supports. um, And we'll probably be a lot more productive in the workplace.
0: I'm remembering one of the quotes from one of the democratic, uh, debates where there was a long conversation about the healthcare system. And one of the candidates said, we don't really have a healthcare system. We have a sickness treatment system. And so I think that gets kind of back to this question about how do we help people get healthier before, you know, so they don't get sick. Right. Um, Absolutely. And do you see trends coming out of this divide, uh, the pandemic response that are going to drive us in that direction?
1: I, I think that um, the the holes in our in our our safety net have been uh, exposed to everyone now. It's every, everyone's. You know, no, it's going to be difficult for anyone to say uh, they don't know that there's a problem. Um, I think that I've 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 often said that everyone's second job now is public health whether you pick up the trash or you're a bus driver or you're a grocery store clerk, um, or you are a, um, you work on a golf course, uh, an accountant, you know, whether you work in the healthcare system, everybody's second job is prevention and wellness. Uh, and we, and now we know how important it is because had we pay attention earlier and made the proper investments in our society earlier, uh, we would have known that this disease was coming much faster we would have gotten our hands around it much faster. And I hope that we would have had a healthier society which did not have the health disparities, which disadvantaged certain populations, particularly the minority populations, um, more so than others. Um, We also would have probably, if we paid a lot more attention um, to our society, um, we would have had people that would have been able to be more resilient. And if they had to stay home from work, Um, they wouldn't have been one paycheck away from total disaster.
0: So along those same sort of lines, it seems like the pandemic has maybe jump-started the move to telehealth. Do you see uh, telehealth being um, maybe uh, a leverage tool in increasing public health and public health awareness?
1: You know, our whole healthcare system, both the public health side as well as the medical care side, Um, are still practicing in the dark ages when it comes to electronic um, technology and the ability to move data around. You know, the the retail business, um, you know, the Amazons of the world, the the Googles of the world, the people who gather information for a living and then sell our information to others, um, (laughs) have done a much, much better job of telling me before I know what I want, what I want. And... We now need to figure out how we utilize that technology to share information to in a way that's confidential, because we want to make sure that our privacy is protected. Um, but but it's going to be important that um, we move to this environment where where we now know you can actually do a good primary care visit through telehealth. Um, you know, we kind of um, tripped around the scenes and, and, and thought around um, in some very early adopters around the use of telemedicine and telehealth. telepsychiatry was going fairly well. And the military, actually, telesurgery was going quite well. But we, but, but this is this is going to jumpstart um, that quite well. Building, by the way, is not just um, um healthcare. Um, because I was uh, I was a a telework skeptic. You know, about 25% of my, my staff were teleworking, and I wasn't excited about it boy I'm an, I am I I'm, I'm sold now um, the things you know the things that we're able to do now um, by the way our, our annual meeting I don't know how nap is planning this annual meeting but I know that APHA is looking to try to do um, if we can a hybrid meeting both in in person and virtual and if we can't um, because it's going to be a, in October of this year um, we're going to do an all virtual meeting but it turns out you can do a robust educational meeting. And so, it's going to totally re, uh, revolutionize the way we work, play, pray, um, get our education—no doubt about it.
0: Well, you know, there's that old uh, saying: "Never let a good crisis go to waste," right? Never uh, Let a good crisis scary. go to
1: waste. And, so and think, you know, those of us in public administration, um, I think, have a have a unique opportunity here because, quite frankly, um, the the public um, administrators that have been involved. Um, in this outbreak, have done just a tremendous job. And I, I just got to say, Terry, that they're not getting the credit for the hard work um, that they're doing um, um, throughout, throughout our economy.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. And we're seeing a whole new appreciation for the scope of activities and responsibilities that fall under public administration, like public health, for example. Um, and so, as we sort of get towards the end of our conversation here, I want to turn our Focus towards the future. If you could be king of public health for a day, um, what kind of investments would you want to make sure people are making now, even as states are facing really tough budgetary trade offs, right? Uh, falling revenues, still the demand to deliver services, but they've got to be making some investments. What kind of investments should we be making now? to build the capacity to deal not only with the effects of this pandemic, but for the future?
1: Yeah, technology, um, training of staff, and um, public education. Those, those are the three things that I would do, um, particularly the public education and letting the public understand the value of public health, because we always say that public health does its best work when nothing happens, um, but uh, and we don't get credit for it. But now that something's happened, we need to make sure the public understands the value um, of their public investments right now and and how additional investments that are smart and practical and well thought through um, can make us even safer.
0: So what's on your agenda with APHA for the future?
1: Um, We're going to continue to advocate for building this um, this robust public health system. Um, and making sure that everyone has universal um, access to health care, at least access to health insurance coverage in, in some manner. Um, and we're going to continue to, um, to support our nation's um, effort to, um, to support public officials.
0: Well, George, as you've got important work out there in front of you. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us today.
1: Terry, thank you.
0: For our listeners, uh, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.